Simon. Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Simon. Simon. It's Skyler. How hey, you doing? Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. How you doing? Hey. Hello. Hey there. Simon. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. This is Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts, and folk and fairy tales from our elders. And I am your host, Simon Brooks, a meeting with professional storytellers. I first met Joseph Bruchak through a book called Turtles Race with Beaver, which he had co-authored with his son James. I had read it, fallen in love with it, and wanted to tell it. Couldn't find another version of the tale. So I reached out to Joseph to get his permission, and we had a very long conversation about first American stories, life, and storytelling in particular. Since then, I have seen him tell, we have bumped into each other at various venues, and we've become friends. Joseph is not only a highly talented Abenaki storyteller, keeper of traditional tales, but also a highly acclaimed writer and poet. I nominated him for the National Storytelling Network's Talking Leaves Award. Of course he got it. I am thrilled to have him join the alumni of Conversations with Storytellers. Joseph Bruchak, thank you so much indeed for joining me for Conversations with Storytellers. I'm very excited to have you on the show. Only on me, my friend. Thank you very much. uh, I've been a a huge fan of your work um, ever since I became, I was a children, I was a feral children's librarian for a little while. (laughs) And I stumbled across, untrained is what I mean by that. and I stumbled across your book about bats, um, having the bat with the animals, and like, was he a mammal or wasn't he a mammal? The great ball game. Yes, 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 that one. And uh, I fell in love with that story, and then I found other books of yours as I was working in the library, and then I started to buy a lot of your books for the library because I loved the way that, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you never wrote a bad story. But I also wanted to have you on this podcast because you are a keeper of traditional stories for the first Americans. I try to be. I let other <laughs> people decide whether I am or not. Okay. So um, you're, you're part Abenaki, right? Yes. My mother's side of the family is a native side. My dad's side is Slovak. And in fact, the name Brushak means bear person in the Slovak language, which is kind of appropriate because the bears are... Uh, totem or uh, clan animal on the Abenaki side. We say Abenaki when we're speaking the language, but Abenaki is how people generally say it in English. So I switch back and forth just to try to make no one uncomfortable. <laughs> that sounds great. And I'll try and I'll say, say, it, say it again properly so that I should say it properly. Okay, Abenaki. Abenaki. The emphasis right. is usually on the third syllable from the end, Abenaki. And that's true of most of our Algonquin languages all across the continent. It's interesting the way that language goes, because in Welsh, it's the penultimate syllable that is usually the one that's that's accented. Oh, yes. So it's, it's, it's interesting the way that different languages have their different accents. Well, the musicality of a language is something that's always interested me. In fact, when people first heard the Europeans, the Abenaki language, they talked about it being as musical as the flowing of the streams and the singing of the birds, which I think is a lovely oh, description. I love that description. That's 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 really nice. <laughs> <laughs> so when you grew up, was your Abenaki language used much? 
Well, you have to understand, I grew up at a time when many people did not want to be identified as Native American or Indian. My grandfather was one of those. I was raised by my grandparents on my mother's side. And my two sisters were raised by my parents just a half a mile away. And the story of that is in my autobiography, Bowman's Store. So I won't bore you with that right now. I was much more influenced by that side of my family. That said, I did not hear the Abenaki language spoken except by other people. It was not spoken by anyone in my immediate family. But for some reason, from my early childhood on, maybe because my grandfather was so visibly Native American, dark-skinned, his features, the way he did things was very indigenous, although I didn't know it at the time. For example, he told me his father never struck him. He only would talk to him. When he caught a fish, he would say thank you to that fish. Uh, He had a relationship with the land, which was very, very interrelational, not just controlling it, but being part of it. And I would realize later in life how indigenous, how native that was, and how he had carried on that tradition without saying he was. But because of that, I would hear the language spoken in places like, for example, the Enchanted Forest, which was a tourist attraction in northern New York. Maurice Dennis, Madawilasis, who was a Beneke and became a very dear friend in later years, ran the Indian village up there and occasionally spoke the language. He'd say, Kwai Kwai, Nidoba, hello, my friends. And uh, his house had a little sign over the top of it that said, this is the brightest place, but in the Abenaki language. So uh, I heard that, I ran into that when I was a child with indigenous people who were being Indian in the only safe place then in the Northeast off of a reservation, which was in a tourist attraction. And many of the people I met in those years uh, for example, my friend Swift Eagle, who was Pueblo and Apache, worked at a place called Frontier Town in the shadow of Fort Custer, where he had ran the archery range. And he was a fascinating man who taught me many things. My friend uh, Dahana Dolans, Ray Fadden, a Mohawk elder, who became a very important teacher. And his son and now his grandson have illustrated books of mine. He was actually working in a place called the Indian Village in Lake George and then founded something called the Six Nations Indian Museum in Ontario to New York near Saranac Lake. So as a young person, I did not really get the language. What happened was when I got to be in my 20s, I began seeking out often the same people I'd met when I was a child in these tourist attractions. And uh, Maurice Dennis, Madawi Lassus, actually gave me my first Abenaki language book, which was one he had copied and recopied many times, uh, written by an Abenaki elder um, who was one of the keepers of the language. There have been three different books written by Abenaki people from 1840 until the early 1920s, teaching their own language. So that was my real start with the language with Maurice. And then by in my 20s, after I came back from uh, three years of teaching in West Africa, and began to uh, dive more deeply into my indigenous heritage. So, wow. Okay. So we'll come back to that in a minute, because um, that's that that I want to hear about that for sure. So, did you hear s- stories like tra- your your traditional stories from your grandparents? Again, from my grandparents, I heard Adirondack stories. We had a general store and a gas station actually in that building right now. And downstairs, there was a pot-bellied stove. People would come at night, sit around the stove, and they would tell stories, tall tales, and they would sing songs. A a good friend of mine, who in later life, again, became a very close friend, named Lawrence Older, was called the last Adirondack minstrel. And Pete Seeger learned songs from Lawrence Older. 
He was a keeper of tall tales and traditional songs. And I learned dozens and dozens of stories and songs from him, often things I first heard when I was a small child, such as the logger's alphabet. So instead of A, B, C, D, E, F, T, we'd hear A is for X, as you very well know, P for the boys who can swing them also, C is for chopping so early begun, D for the danger we oftentimes must run. So I, I developed an ear for hearing stories and listening as a child, but I did not hear those traditional stories. I found them in books. I heard them again told at places like the Enchanted Forest or Frontier Town, where Swift Eagle actually, though it was Pueblo Apache, <laughs> was often telling what I later discovered were Haudenosaunee Iroquois stories. And later I didn't them in the Seneca language and say, oh my God, this is a story that Swifty told me, except he told it with a coyote and the traditional story has Fox as a trickster. So that was an interesting process of discovery for me after uh, 1969, I came back from Ghana after having been there for three years. I'd gotten my uh, bachelor's degree at Cornell University, my master's degree at Syracuse. And then when I came back home, began really searching out and learning more of those things. So my kids grew up hearing the Abenaki language or Beneki being spoken, not very well, but being spoken. We, we used words in the language all the time. We had a dog named Malsum, which means wolf. And uh, so my son, Jesse, in particular, became fascinated with it and has devoted the last 30 years of his life becoming completely fluent in the language. We tell stories bilingually together, and he is the director of the School of Abenaki at Middlebury College, which he founded three years ago. So oh. that is a roundabout relationship between myself and the language that uh, was really from my adult years on. And then my kids, from the first moment they breathed, they heard the language being spoken or at least referred to. Wow. So you went over to West Africa to teach. Yes. So you got your teaching degree. I got my master's degree in creative writing with a minor in English at Syracuse University. I was one of the first people to have a full fellowship in their creative writing program. Oh, and wow. This period in 1966, I was very involved. I was involved in the civil rights movement, March with Martin Luther King. I was involved in the peace movement, uh, read poetry against the Vietnam War with my friend Robert Bly. And I was determined to do something positive at that time when the world seemed to be full of nothing but, you know, literally murderous actions on the part of major governments, including, of course, the United States and Vietnam. So I had always been fascinated with Africa and African culture, had friends in uh, both uh, Cornell University and Syracuse University who were from Africa. And my wife, Carol, was also very interested in that. So we volunteered for a program, not the Peace Corps, it was called Teachers for West Africa. I applied to the Peace Corps and they wanted to send me to Brazil six months before I finished my master's degree. So no, that worked out. that's not going to work. <laughs> so this other program, my sister Marianne sent me a clipping about it from the Cornell Daily Sun. I was then at Syracuse University and we applied and were accepted first for Nigeria. But because the Nigerian civil war was going on, we couldn't go there. And then Ghana opened up because Kwame Nkrumah who was the Pan-Africanist leader of Ghana, had been overthrown in a coup, and they were now allowing Western teachers to come in. So we ended up going to Ghana, a country that I will always think of as a second home. And uh, that's, that's incredible. And of course, it's the home for Anansi the spider as well. Oh, yes, I heard Anansi. Well, they would call him Yi Yi in the uh, Eve language. And same story, 
same character. And I was uh, very fortunate because at that time, I had not realized how bad the war in Nigeria would be. And I had the luck of being in a country that was free of warfare, that was very progressive, very focused on education. Ghana had at that time three universities for a country of 8 million. That's pretty amazing in West Africa. I was teaching yeah. secondary school and those three years were very important to me. In fact, I'm in touch with the Alumni Association for the Kata Secondary School. It's the 60th anniversary of the school and I just finished writing an essay and sending them copies of some of the photographs I took while I was there in Ghana. Oh, that's amazing. So what, what I didn't really, you know, you talk about you marching with Martin Luther King and, and, and all this kind of stuff. It's like, I had never ever pegged you as being old enough to have been at these places. Yeah. Well, I am, I am 80 years old now, Simon. So, well, yeah, I, I had no idea. I thought you were like, I don't know, in your late fifties, sixties, I don't know, something like that. Yeah, really. I'm rubbish at that kind of stuff. Well, I think so too, but I'm prejudiced. <laughs> no, right, right, right. <laughs> so, so when you were in West Africa, did you, did you see many storytellers over there? And did that influence you or like awaken something inside you? Or? It really influenced me deeply and in more ways than I can describe, but I'll just say that first of all, storytelling is a way of life in West Africa. And then I discovered how much of a parallel it was to traditional Native American storytelling. I would hear the storytelling in the language and in English. And I also became acquainted with and quite close friends with a number of African writers, a man named Kofi Awunor, who was a Ghanaian poet and a well-known African writer, became a very dear friend. I'd later published three of his books when I started a, a small literary publishing house when I came back to the United States. At one point, our Greenfield Review Press was the leading publisher of African poetry in the world. <laughs> that was kind of not hard to do, you know, do a dozen books and you're way ahead of everybody else except for the <laughs> African Writers Program in England. And uh, then another person who became a very, very dear friend whose books I taught was Chinua Achebe. And uh, Chinua was one of the great writers of West Africa and became, as a matter of fact, one of the advisors for my PhD years later. Chinua's really? yeah, Things Fall Apart is a book I think everyone should read. I learned mm -hmm. so much from that book because it's integration of colloquial um, English as spoken in Nigeria, of traditional storytelling, of history and of telling the story in a very, very, I would say African way was something that influenced me. And I actually dedicated and have mentioned a number of times his influence on me as a writer and a storyteller. Huh? I'll have to, I'll have to look that book up. Things fall apart. Things fall All right. Apart. Yeah. So, so when you came back to the States, having, being immersed in storytelling or, or being awakened in storytelling maybe a bit more than you were before who who were the first people that you went to to were you were you into were you did you start collecting when you came back over here i began working with native stories traditional stories and i felt my kids had not they should have what i had not had which was an immersion in our traditional culture and our way of thinking and our histories because as a child Every book I read that was for a kid that had anything to do with Native American people tended to be prejudiced, tended to be incomplete, tended to be inaccurate, even tended to be racist. My little ten Indians, that kind of stuff. Indians were seen almost as inhuman 
There are only two kinds of Indians, the vanishing noble savage who is doomed to extinction or the evil murdering redskin who was, you know, shot by John Wayne in some movies. So you had right. to understand that was what I grew up with. And I knew it wasn't the reality. Even as a child, I recognized that maybe because of who I was raised by. My grandfather, uh, in fact, my grandfather, Jesse, was so dark-skinned that sometimes people used the N-word when they referred to him. And uh -huh. when I was at Cornell University, interesting story, I was on the wrestling team. I was the varsity heavyweight wrestler for three years. And my grandfather came out to visit me, uh, to see me in a wrestling match. And he brought with me my two best friends, David Phillips and Tom Furlong. Tom Furlong was Irish-American, red-haired, you know, light-skinned, blue eyes. And David Phillips was a very dark-skinned African-American. He and I had been on the wrestling team together, and he was a real good buddy of mine. So my grandfather stayed in the dorm with me, with my two friends, and introduced them to everyone as my two brothers. <laughs> and people looked at me. They looked at David. They looked at Tom. They looked at my grandfather. Then they looked at me again. And the interesting thing about that is Cornell U has, uh, University has 52 fraternities at the time. And when yeah. fraternity rushing came, when they visit people to invite them, freshmen to visit their fraternity, nobody came to invite me. There were no African-American fraternities. There were no African-Americans in fraternities at the time. And only one invited me. And it was because I was on the wrestling team and the person on the wrestling team who was a heavyweight wrestler who I worked with knew me. And I had told him that story because I thought it was so funny. So he told everybody in his fraternity, hey, Joe's not really a Negro. He's really white. I oh had no idea until years later that that was what had happened. Uh, but that to me, you know, really was a lesson, I think, in prejudice and in people not seeing you as who you are. Yeah. Anyway, getting back to the original question, I wanted my kids to have a fuller education than I had. So I began telling them traditional stories. I told them Abenaki stories. I told them Hodino Sony stories. Some were ones I'd learned from uh, Dahana Dolan's Ray Fadden or from my friend Maurice Dennis. Some of them were ones I looked up and found that had been written and then felt the written versions were not complete or correct and checked it over with people I knew who were native. I began telling my own versions and, uh, I got to know more and more people who were, who were storytellers. I can't say I had any mentors when I was beginning to storytell. I really was on my own. And I did have people I learned from, but I had no storytellers I was copying or apprenticing with. I was just out there doing it. And at one point, a friend of mine named uh, John Gill, who founded something called New American and Canadian Poetry, and then The Crossing Press. John was publishing first cookbooks and then books of poetry and then wanted to publish children's books. And he approached me and said, I've seen the things you do with your two kids, Jim and Jesse. Have you any traditional stories that you tell them? So I began writing down some of the stories, but the way I wrote them down was I would ask my son, Jesse, to tell them back to me, how he remembered them to see if I'd gotten across. And then the versions I wrote down really were based on our dialogue, my kids and myself, about the stories I was telling, so they would be memorable and work for them. My first book of stories, uh, 76, was called Turkey Brother, Turkey Brother and Other Iroquois Stories. And that was based on traditional Seneca stories, which I researched and heard and uh, had a number of sources. For example, Arthur C. Parker, who was himself of Seneca heritage, had written down a number of these stories, 
although I, I did versions of my own. I tried to make them more colloquial, the way the language sounded to me. And I learned later that they really were effective because many of my Seneca friends began using those stories. In fact, uh, a, a friend of mine who actually uh, taught the uh, Seneca language would bring the book into her class and have the kids translate it back into Seneca to, because uh, she said it worked really well. And the way I'd written it was very much like Seneca. And that then they could then oh. use that Fernandogawaga uh, language to uh, produce a, a story which is close to the original. And that is one of the greatest things that's always been my experience that whenever I find a traditional native community that likes what I've written about their community, then I feel like I've really accomplished something. And by the way, yeah. whenever I write a book that is not about either a Beneke or Haudenosaunee people who have all these continuing relationships, I always turn to tradition bearers and tribal historians, have them review whatever I write, offer their information to me. And uh, that was true for a, a novel of mine called Code Talker about the Navajo right. War II. I worked closely with Navajo Code Talkers, with people who teach the Navajo language, uh, with Navajo historians. And therefore, every page I wrote was reviewed from about four different directions before anything ever showed up in print. This has been wow. my process for storytelling. I should say that I discovered early on I had an incredible memory. I loved reading poetry. And my grandmother was a very literate woman, had a house full of books. There are a lot of them are still downstairs in this building. And I would pull them off the shelf when I was like three or four years old and try to read them. And I began memorizing poems when I was five or six years old from a child's garden of verses. So that memorizing poetry became something I did naturally and hearing a story would stick with me. I could hear a story once. And I would remember it pretty well twice and I would have it down. And that kind of experience, that kind of memory has served me very well throughout my life. Yeah, that's amazing. So when did you start collecting stories from other peoples, first, other first American people? Well, I'd say probably it began when I was in my late 20s after getting back from West Africa. And I was visiting, again, those people I had known as a child. I became very close friends with my friend Swift Eagle and uh, knew his family quite well and still connected with his family. And he and I would spend hours sitting around and talking. He would be sharing with me all kinds of stories, including traditional stories and real stories. I mean, real, in fact, they happened to his real life. For example, he was a movie Indian and worked with Jim Thorpe. I learned all kinds of stories about Jim Thorpe from Swift oh, wow. Eagle. And years later, I would be, I've written three books about Jim Thorpe. I would be involved in a documentary film I co-authored and uh, produced called Jim Thorpe, World's Greatest Athlete. It was on PBS about seven or eight years ago, maybe longer. And his son, Jack, was telling this story. He said when his dad was in the movies, he was in a movie called They Died With Their Boots On, starring Errol Flynn as Custer. And Errol Flynn was a really mean, nasty man, not a good person at all, but very vain. And Jim Thorpe was with a group of the other native extras, and one of them said, hey, Jim, can you still do that thing with a sledgehammer? Uh, Jim's in his late 50s. Jim said, well, I think I can. So they handed him a 12-pound sledgehammer. He took it in one hand by the end. He held it out as far as he could. Then he leaned his hand back and touched his head with a sledgehammer head. 
Now that's almost superhuman to do that with a 12 pounds. 12 pounds. Oh 12 my pounds. gosh. So Errol Flynn was walking by. He saw us. I can do this. Yeah, this like bonk, hit himself in the head, raised a knot. They just stopped filming. So that, that yeah, later afternoon, all the movie uh, Indian extras were next door at a place called the Brown Derby, a little restaurant across from the Paramount lot. Uh -huh. I think it was Paramount. And <laughs> they were drinking at the bar. And who walks in but Errol Flynn, still in costume, you know, wearing the buckskin and the little bandana and the hat. He has his little goatee. And he sees Jim Thorpe. And Flynn was known for sucker punching people. Or he would, you know, get in fights with people and everyone who was in the movie was told, whatever you do, don't ever hit Mr. Flynn. You know, you fall down, let him beat you up. So Flynn thought he was a tough guy. So he saw Jim Thorpe with his back turned, walked up to him, cocked his fist and threw a punch at Jim from behind. And Jim went, and knocked Errol Flynn out cold. <laughs> Looked down and said, Custer's stuff is still weak. <laughs> so, so Jack told that story. That story is in that documentary film. But when he told it, and when he finished, I started laughing. I was laughing and laughing. He says, Joe, what's so funny? I said, Jack, I got to tell you, I heard that story 30 years ago from my friend Swift Eagle, who was one of the Indian extras and saw it happen. And Jack said, you mean it really happened? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love that. So, there's so, that. so those kinds of stories I heard as well as the traditional stories. Right. If so my Jim, friend Jim, Ray Fadden, if I went to Ray Fadden, the Six Nation Indian Museum, we'd say, Joe, come in here, sit down. You got to hear this story. Just <laughs> the story. That's excellent. Joe Thorpe, um, Jim Thorpe, sorry, he, he, he fascinates me as a human being. Um, we actually went to the Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. Right. And we, we toured the prison that's there, which is quite an interesting place in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And I did a, 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 you know, some some people were talking about Jim Thorpe and why the town was called Jim Thorpe, which is a sad, sad story. It is a sad, um, sad. It used to be called Mouch Chunk, which means yeah. the mouth of the bear, which is a great name. But they decided they were going to change when they combined two little towns together. The whole story of how Jim Thorpe ended up there is kind of sad because his wife Patsy, his third wife, basically sold his remains to the town. The, he was getting a traditional burial in Oklahoma. She came, swept in, and grabbed the corpse with a group of men and a, you know, a sheriff, and uh, took it away while the burial was halfway through. So, many people in his family and others to this day think that Jim should be returned to Oklahoma. I I would agree with that. I would agree with that. One of the stories that I heard was that when they were, when the Olympic team was sailing to to Europe, I think it was for the Olympics. And they were all training on this, on one of the boats, on the boat that they were traveling over on. Yes. And Jim Thorpe was sitting in a deck chair. That's and, right. Yeah. And people would come up and say, why aren't you training with us? And he's like, I am training. And they're like, you're sitting in a chair, mate. Why, why aren't you getting up? He's like, I'm visualizing me winning. And he was yeah. visualizing everything that he was doing. He said, I'm, I'm doing the high jump right now. Yeah. Words. And in fact, that idea of visualization was uh, something that only became part of, you know, modern thought in recent years, but it was very much a native way of doing things. You would see something and then you would visualize yourself doing it. There's a story about a guy on Jim's team who was also Indian who had never kicked a field goal. When the field goal kicker got hurt, 
He said, I've watched people do it. Let me try. He went out and kicked a field goal. No problem. <laughs> Just by having seen it and thought about it. That idea, Jim actually did do a lot of training. He did run on the ship. He did train. He didn't right. just hang around the deck chair. But that was an example of a way of doing things, which is very, very native and which is actually very effective. The idea of seeing someone and then thinking of how they do it, and then doing it rather than studying it in a book or taking a class is very much a, a traditional way of doing that kind yeah. of work. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I think that it's, it's a more natural way of learning as well for, for a lot of people. I know that I, you know, I, when I started recording my own stuff, it, you know, I, what the first person that reco recorded, the person that recorded my first CD, I wasn't able to watch what they were doing very much other than setting things up in the room. Um, and then other people when, you know, when the second guy that recorded me, I very much watched what he was doing and asked questions and, the third time I was like, can I try doing this? And right. he was like, yeah. And I play with it. And then the, the third CD, I recorded it by myself, you know, and it was just like, I just, I, I, I yeah, I, I love that way of learning. It's a lot easier for me than, than other people. Yeah. Jim, I mean, what a character and what a life. I mean, you know, talk about prejudice and everything. It's, you know, he fought it all, didn't he? He did. So, where where did you so you you had your uh, Apache friend that you would go out and visit? Who else? Where else did you travel in the in the U.S. gathering stories? Well, it would be hard to name all the places I've been because everywhere I go, I run into native people, and everywhere I go, I hear stories. I think that's kind of the way it works. There are stories there to be found if you just listen, and listening yeah. is one of the most important things you can do. Sometimes. Uh, you may not even realize what you're listening until you think about it later and it comes to you that that idea of what something is and i would i could actually start uh, naming storytellers who are friends of mine for example gail ross i learned mm. a great deal from gail ross w thomason again i've learned a lot from w and other people who are little known or not known who are people who are just out there for example within the abeniki community uh stephen laurent stephen laurent atian lolo um is an elder who taught me a great many things. And his father was actually uh, a chief, Joseph Laurent, who actually wrote a book about the Abenaki language and going back uh, decades. And there are people that uh, were elderly who became very good friends of mine and who would, who would tell me stories and I would listen to them. They were not traditional storytellers. And uh, for example, I would credit my friend uh, De Wasenta, Alice Papineau, who was the head clan mother of the Eel clan on the Onondaga Reservation. When I was a graduate student at Syracuse University, I used to ride my Harley Davidson motorcycle to the reservation and sit around uh, in the little trading post, as they called it, which was a store that her mother and she ran, and just sit around the stove and listen to them tell stories and talk. And I just would be there listening to them. This was back in, actually that was 1965, even before I went to West Africa. So wow. I, always have had that affinity for and interest in and when you are quiet around elders it's amazing what you can learn i have a, a friend who has passed on now going back shiltoski who was a cherokee uh, woodcarver and elder on the uh, koala boundary cherokee reservation down in cherokee north carolina and i was at the wolf trap festival with him and his wife once and uh, they were selling things at a, a booth 
And across me, there was a man carving a totem pole. I said, that's really interesting. And uh, going back, so watch, go over there and watch, see what you think learn. So I went over and watched and she was carving. People kept coming up and asking questions and then leaving before he answered. You know, that's how people do that. Oh, what's that? <laughs> oh, just working away. Finally, it got around lunchtime and the crowds had cleared out. And Mr. Paul, the person who was carving the totem pole, looked up and said, hey, come on over here, help me turn this over so I can work on the other side. So I helped him turn the pole over and he began telling me stories. Now, because wow. I stood there watching all that time, about an hour, not saying a word, while other people asked questions, he knew they weren't interested, but he knew I was. And he knew he could trust me, even yeah. just to help him with the pole. So I helped him turn it over and then he started telling me stories. And some of the raven stories he told me, I still remember to this day. So oh. the raven is often carved on top of the pole. So that idea of being a listener, if I go to any one of my stories, I can probably tell you the story connected with that particular story and how it came to me. And I also- job, Yeah, that's important too, I think. And because I uh, have a PhD, I have all this academic qualification, I can do all the research, I can actually you know, go to libraries, look things up. I can find versions of stories that are incomplete and fill in the rest of that story from my connection with people who are in that culture and understand that language. I also have often uh, taken things that are in another native language and uh, done a retranslation of them. And some of the uh, Mohawk stories I tell, I can point you to a book that was published by the uh, New York State Museum, New York State Museum about uh, 40 years ago that collected those stories bilingually. And I can go through them, you know, page by page, line by line, and wow. do better translation. In fact, because I've heard the story in some cases or no other versions of the story. So that when I tell the story of, uh, let's say, the cannibal skeleton, as it's called in Mohawk, I uh, incorporated that in a novel of mine called Skeleton Man. And I've told that story many times, but I came to it in several different ways, including wow. my deep connection with native people. I, I have to mention, for example, my friend Dahana Dolan's, uh, I mentioned, uh, you know, Ray Fadden, but also my friend Tom Porter, I just recently published a Tom is a Mohawk elder who tells the story of the peacemaker. And just about, oh, perhaps a, a year ago, this book came out called The Peacemaker for Warring Nations. It's the story of the founding of the League of the Haudenosaunee. It is illustrated by David Fadden, who is the grandson of Tahana Dolan, is Ray Fadden. is his Mohawk name. And this is based on the telling of the founding of the League of the Haudenosaunee, as I've learned it from a dozen different indigenous Mohawk and other native people over the last 40 years. And wow. I credit them in the front of the book. In fact, crediting people is very important. Saying where the stories come from, um, acknowledging, and also paying back in any way you can. Uh, Tom, for example, runs a community called Ganajo Halege, and it's a Mohawk community along the Mohawk River on the site of an ancient village, 40 acres. Um, and it's a long story about how they came back there, fulfilling the Mohawk prophecy that one day their people would return to their homeland from Canada and the North uh, United States border with uh, New York State, uh, where they ended up in several reservations. And when I uh, think of my association with Tom and all I've learned from him, I'm always donating money to Ganache Lege. 
Uh, just a few weekends ago, I acted as the master of ceremonies for a fundraiser for the Ganache-Halega community. <clears throat> um, my novel, Code Talker, I learned so much and gained so much from, from those Code Talkers. I have always sent some portion of my royalties for that book in some fashion or other to the Navajo Nation. For example, during COVID-19, I regularly donated and still donate money to the uh, various COVID relief funds for the Navajo Nation, including the Hopi and Navajo Nation COVID relief fund, which is still available. You can find it on the internet. And uh, that idea of, of paying back, of maintaining a relationship, I think is really important. And we should not forget that, that we are people who, uh, as our old saying goes, we share to survive. And when yes. you have something, you have to give something back. Yeah. Yeah, the story of the Code Talkers is incredible because it, you know, that it was the Navajo language that helped us as allies win World War II to, in, to some degree. Yes. Right. It was a, I think it was a large part of it anyway. Right. And these were all men who in school were told never speak our language. They were beaten if right. they the word in the Diné language. And yet they were asked by the United States Marine Corps to use that forbidden language create what well, turned out to be the only unbreakable code in World War II. My first wife, Carol, we were married for over 45 years. She passed away in 2011. And uh, I was very close with her family, but her mother was from Oklahoma and had Indian ancestry, but never talked about it. And when Carol and I started dating, her mother was really worried. She said, but Indians are so dirty. This is back in the 1960s. But Indians are so dirty. Well, I that prejudice I, I, in so many ways still to this yeah. day. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I was, I was, I was out with, I was hanging out with my one of my American cousins back in the eighties, mm -hmm. and he was a pilot for Delta, and he had a, another pilot with him who was African American, and they were out fishing on this lake. And my cousin Bruce, he was rowing the boat, and the guy that he was with being African-American was, was spotted by some other people out fishing who were white. And they called out to Bruce, Hey, why isn't the other guy rowing? Right. And it's like, this is like the 1980s oh, yeah, in, sure. in, in the UK, it, you know, you, you'd never hear that. No, I mean, people, I'm, I'm, racism does exist in the UK. Oh, right? I mean, it, it, it does. Everywhere and I'm not saying that it doesn't, but if you were to say that out loud in public, Mm -hmm. back in the 80s that, that you would have that would have been trouble chasing but here, they, they just ignored right it now, this this year what happened when the queen's favorite companion made that remark to a woman of african caribbean ancestry like where are you really from you know and in england that was a huge error and people really rightly called it a task that kind of stuff happens all the time to this day here in the united states and nobody ever complains about it or hardly ever complains but oh, oh where are you really from oh oh you have such lovely brown skin <laughs> it's like right? if you're being really patronizing and sweet which uh, some people yes. are so yeah unfortunately that's part of the the makeup of this country is a, a very deep ingrained racism and as a matter of fact i didn't mention this i've mentioned it in writing many times one reason why a beneke was not being you know claimed as an ancestry in many parts of the Northeast was because of what happened when you were recognized as a Native American. 
in Vermont in the 1930s into the 40s and 50s, they had a eugenics project identifying and theorizing Native Americans. There's actually a book recently written called Building Better Vermonters, which is about the uh, Vermont Eugenics Project. And I know of families up on Monument Road in Swanton, Vermont, who will tell you that they had like dozens of aunts and uncles or relations who could never have children because they went to one of these free mobile clinics and without realizing the paper they signed, they had been sterilized. And I have a friend named Judy Dow who says that she has more than, I think it was more than 20 members of her family who were on the list of the Vermont Eugenics Project, whether they were sterilized or not. So being wow. Indian was not a safe thing in the state of Vermont. And back in 1985, a friend of mine named Wolfsong, who was a storyteller, he since passed on, was kind of my apprentice in some ways, a very dear friend. He called me up and it was when he first beginning getting known as a storyteller. He said, I got a call from my aunt today, Joe. She was all upset. Why? He said, well, she said, now people are going to know who we are and they're going to come and get us. Was oh, wow. She was still afraid that they were going to come and get her because she was identified as a Beneke. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. It's nuts. Why can't we just get on and, and move on? Live together and accept one another and be nice. Well, I think like, how hard is that? We listen to each other's stories. Those stories remind us of our common humanity. It's always done that. Right. I found storytelling is a way into people's hearts, a way of, of making things in a way they would otherwise not be. I'd like to tell you a story about my son Jesse, as a matter of fact. Um, so, how old is Jesse? Jesse is now in his late 40s. Okay. And uh, my son Jim is in his 50s. Jesse is 48 right now, as I recall, 48 or 49. Okay. But Jesse grew up learning the language and, as I said, devoted himself going up to uh, Canada to the reserve where there were a number of still affluent speakers and working directly with him for, for many years. But he and I went to uh, the Yucatan Peninsula in 1992 because we were collecting stories from the Mayan people, from the Lacandon Mayan, and we spent a couple of weeks in the village of Naha. And then Jesse made friends with a young Mayan woman, and they were sort of dating for a few years. And he went down to Mexico with her, and they went again on the Yucatan Peninsula to this one historical site with an ancient temple. And when they got there, they were dropped off she looked at Jess and she said, we've made a terrible mistake because she looked around and she could see a lot of rough looking people. And she realized this was about the Zapatista time. And it wasn't safe to be an American in some parts of uh, Mexico. She said, oh, Jesse, I'm so sorry. I brought you here. I think we're really in trouble. We won't be able to get a ride back for a couple of hours until the you know, driver comes back or this car comes back. And Jesse said, don't worry. <laughs> this group of people came up to me and said, hey, Let's sit down together over here in a circle. I want to tell you guys a story. And so he told them a story <laughs> and she was helping translate it in Spanish. And when they finished, everybody was smiling. They shook their hands, patted them on the backs. And this Jesse and uh, his friend walked away. She said, you could go anywhere with stories, couldn't you? Said, well, yeah. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so too, yeah. So I, you've written a ton of books. Well, I can't even, it's got to be close to over 100 by now. Yeah, it's over 180 now. 
Uh, over 190, okay. Some of them are very small. <laughs> very short. Oh, right, right, right. But some of them are, are quite big, right? And, yeah. you know, the, the, and you've done poetry collections. You've edited poetry yeah. collections as well. Because I have one of those, um, book, the survival book of poetry. Mm -hmm. um, do you still write poetry? I certainly do. I've actually got two or three unpublished poetry manuscripts. I write poems and publish them in magazines all the time. I've been focusing so much on my writing for young people. I have not stopped. I'm still writing things for all ages. For example, I write science fiction. I've had stories published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction a couple of times in recent years. I did not know that. Collection of, uh, you know, science fiction fantasy stories that hasn't yet been published. But uh, I have a book that just came out this December. It's called Voices of the People. And each uh, poem, each story in the book is a poem about a different uh, native person who should be known, beginning with the peacemaker a thousand years ago and ending up with Wilma Mankiller. And that just has been published by Raycraft Books. And it's the most beautiful book of mine I've ever seen done because it has every poem is faced by a contemporary native artist some work oh, of beautiful which has some relationship or maybe not to the poem and it's all done on colored paper in its large format and it's called voices of the people and that's all poems i've written within the last couple of years but they say it's already sold out the first printing and now they've done a second printing before it's been delivered to stores just pretty cool wow that's so amazing that was it crowdfund was it crowdsourced or anything like that then uh, it was just, you know, basically they're publicizing it in their normal way uh, on whatever media they use with the publisher. And it's gotten such good reviews. It actually has gotten three-starred reviews and has been chosen as the best poetry book of the year by School Library Journal and best uh, middle grade book of the year by Kirkus, as I recall. Nice. That's excellent. That's so good. Congratulations. Lots of writing poetry. <laughs> So when you you said at the very beginning of this interview that you when you hear a story you you've pretty much got it if you've heard it twice then it's absolutely locked in there mm -hmm. and a question that I often ask storytellers is what's your process and you've also talked about throughout this interview is like hearing different variations of the stories the different versions of the stories mm -hmm. from other storytellers so so when, when you come across a story that you want to tell and want to share, how, I'm assuming, I'm guessing, tell me about that process, like how, how, it, how it starts and how it ends up and what the process of that life of that story is, if you can. I have to say it, it's pretty organic. It's not like I practice it in front of a mirror, which is a good way, by the way, to practice stories. I don't go out and tell my story to a tree, which is another good way of, of learning uh, to tell stories. It just seems to happen. And I'm not sure how it happens or why it happens, but it does. And as I tell the story, I'm not seeing the entire story in my mind as I tell it. I'm following the story and letting the story lead me to the place it's going. So I don't think ahead. I just trust that the story is there for me. I've described wow. it as like a walk on a familiar path. As you walk along that path, you know where you're going. You know where you're going to end up. And you see things along the way. And as a storyteller, you sort of describe them or let them describe themselves. And then you end up at that place that you were heading. So there is a circularity to it and a natural process. And I have often told people it's important to listen to your own voice. 
to hear yourself tell the story. And I have occasionally recorded stories and listened to them to see how I sound, but now I don't do that anymore. I just sort of trust the story. Um, as my friend uh, Kevin Locke, who is a great native storyteller, says, um, have faith in the story, trust the story, and the story itself will take you along. I think of the story as a living thing who is a mm -hmm. companion with me when I'm telling it. In fact, uh, many of our stories we don't tell in the summertime. We only tell them in the winter. And the saying is that in the summertime, our stories go north and sit around a fire telling stories to each, telling themselves actually to each other. So if you think of the story as a living presence, I think that helps. If you trust the story, have faith in the story, I think that helps. You think of yeah. the journey of the story or live the journey of the story as you tell it, I think that helps also. And uh, when I write a story down, I don't do much revision. I tend to write it down, then go back and reread it. And pretty much the story is complete as I've written it down that first time without my having to go back and uh, do any rewording or reworking of it. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. never been that lucky. I wrote, a, I wrote a story not that long ago. And I was like, this is such a great story. I love this story. And, yeah. and I recorded it and I put it up there on, on my podcast and I sent it to a couple of publishers and didn't hear anything back. And I was like, I've got to send it out again. And I reread it and I was like, yeah, that's why it got rejected. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, my process as a poet is different. As a poet, I write a first oh, really? and then I reread it and write a second draft. I write another draft. And this is original and not something that is traditional. When it's original, something I'm doing just on my own. And I do multiple, multiple revisions. My novel Code Talk originally started as a picture book with Lee and Lowe, and I did 18 different versions at least of it. And then my editor at the time, Philip Lee, said, you know, Joe, this should be a novel. I'll give it back to you and find another publisher, which was a very kind thing for me to do because I then moved on to Dial, where I did eight more revisions before it was actually finished. But see, that's that's writing something original or some right. even historical writing. I do an immense amount of research. And because of that research, sometimes the stories I tell, I think, come easier because I've researched and learned and know more about the culture the story comes from than just having read it once or heard it once. In fact, I remind people, if you're telling a story that's not from your culture, don't tell it just based on the first time you've heard it or the first time you've read it. Research that culture. Learn about that story from people who are in that culture and who are not just the average person who's, let's say, you're British. You must know everything about England. No. <laughs> sure to someone. I know the Queen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> who knows exactly, precisely that story and what it's about, rather than say, oh, British person, you must tell me all about England's entire history. Of course, you probably right. do a better job than most Americans could, but you know what I mean by that. So that idea of immersing yourself within the culture as far as possible before telling a story from that culture so it becomes of the culture not just from the culture. Further, my recommendation is that you learn your own roots first, deep roots in your own experience, your own family, your own ancestry, your own place. Then you can reach your branches out to others who have different roots and different relationships and have created what they are 
from who they are so that therefore what you do has that kind of authenticity right i'm, I'm a big yeah i totally agree with that and i'm a big believer in that myself you gotta dig i think you gotta dig deep certainly with with those stories that aren't your own culture well you know um alexander pope uh said you know drink deep or not at all from the period spring if you're going to draw on something go deep don't just go on the surface yeah yeah a little knowledge is a dangerous thing is what everybody always quotes but i always quote drink deep or not at all from the period. yeah yeah so I, I have to, uh, like poetry memorizing, by the way, <laughs> I, I see, I can't memorize poetry. I, I cannot do, or like, there are some things that I do remember or have memorized, mm -hmm. but it, it's, it's a slog for me. I can't do that. Well, I memorize poems in other languages. I love Rilke, for example, Breeding is beating a common, the earth is Spring has come again. The earth is like a child who knows poems. I just really uh, have always had this thing for poetry. And I actually drove my, my high school English teacher is crazy because they'd be reading a poem from the book up front and I'd be reciting it from memory in the back, usually a line of two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph Bouchak Echo. You're right. <laughs> All right, I have to ask you this question. And it's a question that I've that, that I that you and I it was actually our, our very first engagement was was on this topic. Um as a European, um, I, as, as a youngster, I fell in love with the the idea of first Americans, Native Americans. Mm -hmm. And as I got older, <coughs> I did more and more research uh, about the cultures that, that are right across this country. I read a ton of books. Um, I did get to see some first Americans who came and visited the UK and hear them talk and all the rest of it. And so I have a uh, a very deep respect for the for the culture across the country and i also know which i didn't know when i lived in the uk um is that some some of the first american peoples don't like their stories being told right and i totally get it when you think about the genocide that has happened uh to the first americans and the culture you know the the, the pillaging of the culture of, of first americans but um for you, as a as part first American, how can you explain that to someone that might not understand that whole that whole thing? Well, I think it's easy to understand if you recognize that uh, Native people have been often seen as stereotypes. They've been seen in simple two-dimensional terms. Their stories have been mistold and have been stolen. The culture has been stolen, now you're stealing our stories. So that idea of basically being protective of your culture, wanting it to be represented properly, and wanting it to be uh, neither stereotyped nor presented from the point of view of, oh, poor Indians, you know, I feel so sorry for you. What can I do to help you? And uh, I have to quote Henry David Thoreau, one of my favorite American philosophers, paraphrase, uh, he said that if someone is coming to your house with the intention of doing good for you, leave by the back door. <laughs> so there is a, a bit of that too. You know, so know. how can we give back? <laughs> so I think that it, it's having a question of having a real relationship 
where the story may not be possible and wanting other people not to tell your story because they'll mistell it or they'll misuse it or they'll just plain steal it and make money off of it, which is something that people often think. They don't realize that most storytellers are not making a lot of money, but they often see the monetizing of everything else in American culture and don't want to see their culture monetized by non-Indigenous people. I think it's as simple as that. So develop a relationship with people. If you're going to tell their story, have a real relationship with them and make sure you know how to tell it. Well, if they say don't tell it, then don't tell it. Don't think you can just sweep in. Oh, this is such a lovely story. I'm going to tell it. I, I can give you an example of that. I won't mention who it was, but a really good storyteller who's a friend of mine called me up very excited because she had turned my story, The Wind Eagle, into a rhymed poem. She was going to publish it as a book. And I said, don't. She said, why not? And I explained it to her in great detail for about half an hour. Then she said, you're right. I won't do that. But that idea that you could just take something and rework it and publish it happens all the time. It has happened all the time with uh, Native American materials. They have been, you know, taken away and published and printed and often misinterpreted. So if people say, we don't want you to tell our story, that's okay. Understand that is the case and just accept it. But the more you learn, the more you people get to know you, they may say, it's okay for you to share this under these circumstances. Right, right. Like they can't trust you to do that. For example, um, years ago, I did a series of programs for a place called Symphony Space in New York City. It was uh, evenings of native storytelling, indigenous storytelling. And we brought together storytellers from the four corners, including South America, and uh, including the, uh, the far and the Northwest. And I was the master of ceremonies and told stories in between from those cultures that I'd learned from the people that they said I could tell within the framework of that. And Albert Whiteman, who was a uh, Cheyenne rodeo writer and a uh, grass dancer, told me the story of the grass dance so I could tell it. But he said, only tell it when someone is going to do a grass dance if a grass dancer has asked you to tell the story. I've known that story for over 40 years. I've told it three times in my life. Every time wow. the dancer asked me that I hear you know the story, would you tell it? I'll never write it down. I'll never tell it outside of that context. I recommend that you remember that example because there may be cases like that for you. And the more you're trusted, the more you learn. But if you do things, right. you know, break someone's trust, don't expect that they'll trust you again. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's one story of yours that I do tell, and I did, we had that very long conversation about it. We had a long time. Yeah, it was a long time ago, and I, I don't tell that story very often, and when I do, it's always, I got permission from Joseph Bruchak, he, you know, we, we had a conversation about this, it's a story of the Seneca people, um, they're based up in northern New England, Vermont, New York, and, you know, this is the, this is the culture that it comes from, as an Englishman. <laughs> As a European, you know, th th there's a lot on my shoulders when it comes to responsibility, yeah. and I know, I know that, and, and I think that, um, you know, some people they, yeah. they they don't realize that as much. Well, I do point out that uh, England test marketed genocide in Ireland before they exported it to other parts of the world. <laughs> Thank you, Joseph. 
how stories go from culture to culture. I just wrote an, uh, a version of a story that was in Parabola magazine called Half a Blanket. And I have been telling that story for years. I learned it as a Mohawk story. I know it in the Mohawk language. And then Eddie Lenahan told it as an Irish story. And he right. said, we've had that story for a long time. And I thought, this is wonderful. That same story, the same cultural meaning. Here it is in a European culture. Here it is in an indigenous native culture. See how many things we have in common. I think that's one thing you and I have, Simon. I think we have so many things in common. We can really discuss this as human beings and not as uh, strangers. Right, right. Yeah, because I, I learned the story of Half a Blanket as an Irish story. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's Irish in my family that goes back. Um, Absolutely. You know, it's a couple of generations back. And uh, it's, you know, I didn't even know that I had Irish in my family until my dad and I, in Eng in Wales, actually, ironically, we're driving through, you know, mm -hmm. that's where my dad lives. Uh, he was born in the north of England, mm -hmm. now lives in Swansea, South Wales, and we're driving along and the radio's on and all these people are being this 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 story that is being told on the radio that all these people are being dragged from their homes and they're being beaten up by the police and and these dreadful things are going on i said what is this about dad is this like about africa or something and he said no this is about the irish in london uh, and i was like what <laughs> really and he said yeah and and did you know that there's irish in our family and i was i was in my 40s when i found out that's right, and then and I bought these green wool pants, these like hunting pants, and I, I wear them with 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 suspenders, as you call them over your braces, to because they're more comfortable that way. And my my daughter, she says, "Oh, is this the Irish farmer look that you go for?" <laughs> yes, thank you, darling. That's exactly what I'm going for. <laughs> Sweet. She is. She's a gem. So, Joseph, uh, if someone wanted to, if someone came to you and said, I want to tell tra my traditional stories, traditional tr stories from my own tradition, from my own heritage, what advice would you give those people? Well, I would say first, listen, be a good listener. Do a lot of listening because listening is the first step. We have two ears and only one mouth, so we better listen at least twice as much as we talk. And the more you listen to stories, the more you'll understand. In fact, there's a saying among the, uh, the Hopi people, the more you know, the less you will fear. And I think that's also true. Know as much as possible before you open your mouth. I also believe that whatever your tradition is, there are many resources you can use to find it. You can research it. You can certainly find written things that are in libraries and are on the internet, although you can't always trust the internet. The internet's full of lies. True statement. I think you have to turn to uh, elders within your culture. If you're lucky enough to have some in your family, listen to them. If not, seek them out and uh, do it in a way that is respectful. That idea of being respectful also may mean being helpful, not just saying, what can I get from you, but what can I give to you or what can I share with you? Is there any way I can help you so that you become a person who has a direct relationship and not someone who's showing up at the door and saying, hey, uh, I know, for example, whenever we would travel to an indigenous community back in 1990. We'd bring a whole load of, of presents to give to people before we even started. Because that sets things off in a good tone. Here we are, we're coming to listen to you, but we want to give you this to show you our intent is good. So that is another way of doing it. I don't know how that particular 
thing would play out in a particular culture, but I would say that it varies from place to place. I also like to point out, I've already sort of hinted at this, that we all have four different routes we can turn to. One is our ancestry. That's a very important route. And in ancestry, we can find so many things. There's songs, there's stories, there's history. There are connections to uh, people who you would not be here if they were not here. In fact, my son Jesse said something really wise to me the other day. He said, one of the people in one of his Abenaki classes uh, said, you know, I just don't know if I should claim my Abenaki ancestry because it's way back in the 1600s. And Jesse said, well, would you be here if they had not been? Would wow, you right. If they had not been. So we are yeah. directly connected, no matter how many generations we go back to those ancestors. The second thing we have is family. And listening to family is sometimes hard. There's always like an uncle or an aunt who just won't shut up, always telling the same damn story. <laughs> well, sometimes if you just listen, that story can turn out to be very, the aunt is no longer with us, you wish you'd listen. So to listen to those people. Uh, the third thing is to know your place, the physical place you are in the universe. Know the land, know the land you come from. It will teach you things. I have my friend, Kevin Locke, I've mentioned Kevin. Kevin told me he was doing a program out in the um, Meskwaki community, which is near Iowa City, or Iowa City is near Meskwaki, I should say. And he was going to do a performance that evening and he went out and walked in the fields and he was listening to the wind and he heard the sound of the wind was like a flute song. And he took his flute, began to emulate the sound of the wind and created a whole new song based on that wind. So then he went back and he performed for the, the organ for the, I should say, the community. And after he was done, old man came up to him and said, you know that last song you did? One he thought he made up. But yes, and the old man said, I've always loved that song, but I haven't heard anyone play it in years. Who taught it to you? Wow. <laughs> I heard it on the wind. And the old man says something like, well, that's the best way to learn it. Oh, wow. The important thing you have is your own personal experience. Trust your experience to teach you things. And don't, don't minimize that. Because often you're learning lessons and you don't realize you're learning them until years later. You realize someone was teaching you a lesson or something was teaching you a lesson. It could be a painful lesson. In fact, I like to... Uh, when I'm doing writing workshops in high schools, high schools love this, I say, write a story or a poem about the worst thing that ever happened to you in high school. <laughs> you go, oh, yeah, I got something. And it's amazing how often some of them are funny. Some of them end up with kids saying, I really feel I got control of this now. I feel good about it. I don't mind sharing it. But often, oh, good. don't look at those things that are difficult in your life or your heritage or your community then you don't look at what's honest. And I think if you're trying to do something that represents your own background, indigenous or otherwise, that you have to go to those four roots and you have to really go deeply with them. And you have to uh, understand that it's not a quick process. It happens over a long period of time. Uh, I was once approached when I was at a powwow while I was selling some things and a person came up and said, I wanna to learn to be a medicine person medicine man. And I said, well, I can't teach you that. What I know is just for my family. But I know a person who is a medicine person 
was getting on in years and she could really use some help. She could really use someone to help her around the house and to help her with things and help her gather plants and do other stuff. And she'd love if someone could come on as, you know, an unpaid apprentice. And then you learn a lot. And this person said, oh, I'm looking for a weekend seminar. <laughs> and uh, I said, uh, life is not a weekend seminar. <laughs> no, kind of wandered yeah, off. It's, life especially if you're gathering herbs. Yeah. Right? I mean, and learning how to administer, administer them. You're, you're there and you're, I would, I would, for example, I'd be hanging around the, my friend De Wasenta's uh, little store in Onondaga. We'd be sitting talking, she'd say, hey, Joe, take me to the supermarket. I got to go get some stuff. Sure. And I take her to the supermarket. We go get some stuff, drive back. She's talking the whole time. And in the middle of it, she's telling me stories. I'm just, you know, being her friend. But she, she said, I want to tell you these stories because kids in our community are not listening to them right now. And I want you to be able to give them back to them in the future. And I've done that in a number of occasions. I mentioned my friend, Maurice Dennis, Madawilasis, and his daughter, Andre Newton, is a very talented wood carver and learned carving from her father. But every now and then, Andre will call me up and say, hey, Joe, what did my dad tell you about this? And I say, oh, okay. <laughs> He told me, blah, 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 blah. And she says, he said, I, I should turn to you one day because I'm not listening to him. I said, thank you very much. And they go, oh, that got green. Okay, That's man. amazing. <laughs> I, love, I love that. All right. I've got a very silly question for you. And this will be my last question because I really appreciate you giving up your time uh, to do this. Last question is, it's a, three, it's a three-part question. What's your favorite breakfast? Where would a favorite place to eat that breakfast be? And who, who would you be eating it with? Well, I tend to eat very little in the morning. I just okay. uh, take some watermelon and put it in a blender, and then I have a watermelon drink. And I usually go for a walk. And I think probably my favorite place to, to have that would be sitting under the big pine tree behind our house. We have a huge pine tree, a couple hundred years old. It, it talks to me all the time. There's beautiful music in that tree. And I think that that idea of sharing something with nature, of sitting out in nature and, and taking what it gives you, uh, that's the best breakfast of all for me. The tree would be your companion. That would be who you'd be having breakfast with. Yeah. That's excellent. I love that. Joseph Bruchet, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I highly recommend our listeners go and find your books in their local brick and mortar bookstore. Yes. Absolutely, highly recommend your your. Oh, and you actually got a Talking Leaves Award for for your writing, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I've gotten. I have a bunch of stuff. I call it my wall of ego behind me with various <laughs> words. I've got. Well, I'm glad you have a wall of ego. It's because <laughs> you're you're a gentleman that that seems to have none. So it's good to know that it, it's a, it's behind you somewhere. <laughs> it's behind there. Well, thanks for doing this for me, Joseph. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope that we can actually see each other face to face soon. Well, you know, as we say, kina takita, listen and see. Take care, Joseph. Bye. There was so much else I wanted to talk to Joseph about. He is such a gentleman. Seriously, find a book of his and read it. He has, in my opinion, never written a bad book. From picture books to young adult, it's all worth reading. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview a certain folk and fairy tale, myths and legends storyteller, then send me an email. Let me know. 
You can find me and my work on Facebook, Simon Brooks Storyteller, on my website, simonbrooksstoryteller.com, and Instagram, Simon M. Brooks. Diamond Scree? Yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. Shout out to Chris Jett for creating and recording and letting me use the wonderful music that he created for my podcast. His band is called Blackpool Mecca. You can help this podcast, keeping it alive, by supporting my craft and becoming one of my Patreons and paying anything from a dollar for an episode you might have enjoyed to a regular monthly subscription. In return, you get extras, early releases, and exclusive content on my work www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks If you can't join my wonderful tribe of patrons then help me out by doing something you can do I would be very grateful if you were to leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcast wherever you found this episode It won't take long and it helps not just me but others find and enjoy this podcast Thanks again for being here with me I know there are a lot of other places you could be so I appreciate it Until next time be healthy Be happy and share the stories you love. Cheers. It's just a story.